It's very quiet in here. Does it make any sense to you if I say, can you hear that? Can you hear the quietness in here? And don't worry if it doesn't make any sense to you. But one of the things that we develop over time in practice is a sensitivity for that which doesn't call the loudest. We learn how to take care of those things that call the loudest, which is usually what? What is it for you that normally calls the loudest? Is it some of those thoughts that sometimes they call loud? Ah! Or I checked with my small group, but at least a few of them owned up to having the thought today, get me out of here. And I said it was probably 95% of the people in here, not everybody at some point, may have had that thought. And usually when that thought arises, we usually hear it, don't you? Don't you? It's like... What else shouts the loudest for you normally? Sometimes it can be physical pain. Physical pain can really call loudly. It has a way of making itself known, doesn't it? I think that's the point. It's kind of saying, pay attention here. Sometimes it might be the emotional life that calls loudly. Strong feelings of aversion, of lust, of desire, of sadness, of sorrow, of love, of hate. And we learn in practice, we don't dismiss those things. In fact, we're interested to learn how to develop a wise relationship with all things. But because the things that call the loudest call the loudest, they usually as what get our attention. And without any training, without any mind training, what we find ourselves is bouncing around from one loudest thing to the next. From the thought that says, get me out of here, to, I wonder what's for lunch to, ow, this hurts, to, when's it going to get easier? And we kind of bounce around from one to the other, and by this time, 7.30 on a Saturday night, we're tired. We can be. So the first day of a retreat isn't always easy. In fact, that can be an understatement. It can be very hard. It doesn't have to be hard. It isn't always hard. But it's very commonly hard. And why is that? 
some of why it is, is that when we stop and take on a practice, and in this case mindfulness of breathing with mindfulness of body, what happens is it shows up in stark relief all the things that are not mindfulness of breathing, doesn't it? Isn't that what you see sometimes? You have the instruction, okay, just notice how your body expands and contracts. Just hang out with that in-breathing and out-breathing, that movement, that rhythm. Tune your attention there, develop a taste for it, so the instruction says. And then what we may notice first is all the other things that are not that. Does that make sense to anybody here? It's like they show up in stark relief. You might have thought you were a peaceful, generous person yesterday before you came here. But we stop and we start to see our mind. And in a way we can't pull the wool over our eyes anymore. In the beginning we might think, oh, it's the practice making me so whatever I am. It isn't, actually. We might blame the practice for a bit. Probably you want to blame me and Brad for a bit. You know, somebody said as well, are you sure you're not deliberately keeping those sessions long so that we suffer extra? You know, and, and it can really seem like that, can't it, when we're with our own body and mind. And when something is difficult and we don't know how to attend to it wisely, time arises, the factor of time arises in the mind, and we want it to end, whatever it is. We want it to end. And in the case of practice, it's ring the damn bell. I'll die if you don't ring it now. No, I will. I'm sure I will. And then we don't. And then the bell rings and we're still here and we think it's all better again. But what's changed actually? What has actually changed? There's a very interesting thing that happens in practice that is not easy and not always welcome, but is an important transition, an important stage, which is where we kind of get it at some point. Now, this might sound really depressing. It's not supposed to be at all. In fact, it's, it's the gateway to really good news. But we really get it that there's nothing to look forward to here at Guy House. Have you got it yet? <laughs> Maybe the meals, and they're pretty good. They were really lovely today, weren't they? It's a really beautiful lunch. Great soup. And then they become the things we look forward to. But at a certain point, you know, has it happened for you already in those practice sessions this afternoon? 2.30, okay, it's going to be Qigong and meditation, okay. In for a great afternoon or whatever your mind does with it. Oh God, in for a horrible afternoon. And then we start Qigong for, for 5 minutes, 10 minutes, 15 minutes, standing still. Oh, Oh, I think I want to sit down now. Oh, that'll be good. We'll do sitting in a minute. That'll be nice. Ah, oh, good. I like meditation. This Qigong can finish and I can sit again. I like the sitting part. And the bell rings and we come and sit. Great. Oh, it's sitting. Oh, 
Well, there'll be Qigong on a minute. That'll be good. That'll be good. Maybe we'll move a bit more. Might be a bit more interesting. Then we get to Qigong and we're standing still. And when are we going to get it that the practice isn't here to entertain us, actually? That there's something very stark but also very profound when we can get it. It's like, oop. Not something here that can keep me in that cycle where I'm always looking forward to the next thing or dreading the next thing for that matter. But I'm always in relationship to the next thing that hasn't happened yet. And I'm living my life, and it's not just here at Gaia House. When we do that, that tendency is the living our life always in anticipation with hope or with fear of what is going to come next. And... When are we going to give it up? Because it doesn't end, does it? That's in a way what samsara is, this spinning, where we don't come to rest in our life. We don't come to fully arrive, stop and know ourselves deeply at home, right where we are. So one definition of samsara may be a word that you've heard, the cyclic suffering, the cycle of suffering, is that we're pulled into that momentum of seeking a better experience or avoiding a painful experience. And it never ends because experience may be pleasant and it may be unpleasant. Even if you are a fully realized Buddha, your back can still really hurt. Someone might be really horrible to you. In fact, many people were horrible to the Buddha. People might love you. They loved him also. So realization, spiritual practice, what it's pointing to, the realization of the ending of that momentum, that itching, either the itching impulsiveness that keeps us spinning or where the momentum doesn't look like momentum but it's a kind of a stagnation. It's kind of the momentum's turned in and we've kind of sunk into stagnation. Realization of the ending of the suffering inherent in constantly being wanting what isn't here or wanting to push away what is here, keeping us pushing and pulling experience, pushing and pulling experience, and we never come to rest. So the Buddha in his teaching, points to that, the ending of suffering. I said it last night. He said, I teach one thing only, and that is suffering and the end of suffering. So this getting it, that there's nothing to look forward to, at first is a bit of a, not at first, it can be very often a bit of a... Where does that leave you? Where does that leave you when you've already had breakfast and there's really nothing to look forward to till lunch? You've got three hours. 
You can be with your own mind, but we get tired of that after a while, don't you? Kind of, no matter how brilliant your mind is, and probably you've seen today all the non-brilliant parts as well, you know, where we get into the judgment and the comparison and the evaluation and the playing back that old story or that old pain. Even if it's really functional, even if it's the most functional, superb mind that plans well and creates well, it doesn't actually have what it takes to understand liberation and release. There's a point for everyone, no matter how functional or dysfunctional your mind is, where we realize we get to the end of the track with it in terms of the familiar patterning of it. And if we're interested in liberation, if we're interested in, in release, you may not call it liberation. You might have just come here for a break. Right? But liberation, what's being pointed to by the, by the Buddha, by the teachings, if we're interested in that, there's a certain point where we have to let go of what is already known, what our mind has already told us about reality, all the descriptions we've put on it, all the descriptions we've put on ourselves, even everything we already know about ourselves. Because if we want to discover something new, for anything new to be able to be discovered, something has to be let go of. This is not to say that the thinking faculty is made redundant in spiritual practice. It is not. The Buddha was not anti-intellectual. He had a brilliant mind. If you look at the teachings, they're quite brilliant. It's not about trying to take our head away or, you know, erase the capacity to think. This is a big evolution we've got to. It's just that it doesn't take us to awakening on its own. It's about being willing to let go of all that is already known, what is already conceived of, what you've all already thought about. And then we can discover something new. And the mind itself, the, the intellectual capacity, can find its place, can find its balance in our human life, rather than either being the God up here that is the authority and everything it says we believe, or everything it says we fear it. Have you ever had that experience these days where it's like, oh my God, that thought's coming. Oh no, not that thought. And we're fearing it, or we're believing it, or we're judging it, or we're... What else do you do with it? We get fascinated by it. One man um, on a retreat, it was a six or seven day retreat, and he was a creative uh, screenwriter. Beautiful job, and he loved it. And so he was used to his mind being something very, uh, with a great facility and creativity. And that can be something really in the service of this world. But in practice, After the second day, he came for an interview and he said, ah, 
I don't go for all this here and now stuff, he said. Um, he had missed the fact that it was part of a tradition of two and a half thousand years. He said, oh, that just comes from the 1960s, all that be here now stuff. He says, I'm not into that. He said, I really like my thinking. I really like it. It's brilliant. Fine. Carry on. But he stayed on retreat. Two days later, fourth day, he came saying, help. Help. Is this it? It just keeps going around in the same circles. Then he was ready. Then he was ready to consider another option. So I want to, tonight to speak a little bit more about body. What happens when I say that word? How many times have you heard that word today? Body. What happens for you when I bring that word in again? I'd be curious, actually, because we're really giving attention today. I mean, this is a Qigong, and insight meditation retreat, so presumably you have some interest in the body. Um, and as I spoke about this morning, the first foundation of mindfulness that the Buddha sets up is mindfulness of body through mindfulness of breathing. And I can speak a little bit more about why, how come, what it offers, what we can cultivate, what are some of the pitfalls, etc., etc. But what happens for you? What is your relationship by this time of day, on the first day when I say, I'm going to speak a little bit more about body anybody have a response well let's let's hear some words like one word of resistance yeah anything else pain Pain. okay yeah holiday for the mind mind. okay yeah anything else anybody have oh goody more about body (laughs) yeah okay one or two (laughs) yeah anyone have oh no not more body nobody's owning up to that one resistance was the nearest we got just know what your response is because this mindfulness of body it's a mixed bag isn't it it's really a mixed bag Actually, you might be wishing it was a mixed bag. It might only be a one a one story bag. It might just be painful today, or it might just be showing up in all the the most difficult aspects of the human body. That can happen. Pain, resistance, density, tiredness. And yet it's a really important doorway for us to practice and understand. And clearly is a big part of the path. So why is it a big part of the path? Why is the body a big part of the spiritual path? Why? Especially as Westerners, many of us have inherited a kind of view that spiritual practice, spiritual life, spiritual realization is going beyond 
the material world. Does that resonate for any of you? It's like spiritual practice, it's going to be something a bit more either up there or out here, but not, not this. I want, to, I want to get beyond this. This hurts. This is aging. This keeps getting sick. This is really sensitive. So some of us inherit that duality either consciously or often unconsciously or, or um, in the background in our heritage. <coughs> that split between the material world and what is spirit, we could say. And that will show up for us. You may not think of that intellectually as something that you have as a view, but it will show up for us if we're giving attention to body and you kind of have that attitude of, but it's just my body. I wanna, I'm here for transcendence or, you know, this is just body. It's, and we value it less as a kind of hierarchy in our mind. Do any of you have that sort of a hierarchy? Body is a little bit more gross. It's a little bit more dense. And it is. It's thick. It's troublesome. It's cumbersome. It takes a lot of effort to keep it going. You have to keep feeding it and taking it to sleep at night and, you know, buying it clothes and keeping it warm and, you know, cutting its hair and, you know, it's a lot of work, one of these. So we can easily have that view then that what is spiritual is somehow... I don't know, what would it be for you? More airy? More, more light? My body's not light. It's full of density. I'm going to the light. Right? Whatever is your view. It's worth hearing the views you have because they will be influencing the way you attend. If you think the body is a lesser vehicle, then we may not take it so seriously. Or we take it so seriously that every little pain and itch and thing it has impacts us hugely. So a couple of things about the body um, for us to consider. See, that's, you might, some of you would be happy with this. This is the page I turned to of my talk, of my notes. I don't know if you can see that. That was the next page that came. It has nothing on it. Okay, so one of the whys of why the Buddha points here as the first doorway, the first gateway to cultivate. So this might be of interest to you. In one of the teachings and one of the suttas, he talks about benefits from the practice of mindfulness of body. So you may or may not relate to the language of awakening or liberation. It doesn't matter. But these benefits, I'm sure, will be of interest to you, right? whoever you are. I'm not going to read all ten out, but I'll read a couple of the, the sort of accessible ones. He says to his monks and nuns, monks and nuns, when mindfulness of the body has been practiced, developed and cultivated and established and undertaken, these benefits can be expected. What are these benefits? Number one. One, 
one, you, one becomes a conqueror of discontent. Discontent does not conquer oneself. One abides overcoming discontent whenever it arises. And we can look into how come in a minute. Number two, one becomes a conqueror of fear and dread. And fear and dread do not conquer oneself. One abides overcoming fear and dread whenever they arise. Number three, one bears cold and heat, hunger and thirst, contact with gadflies. I think they must be a North Indian insect, but whatever our equivalent is here. Contact with gadflies, mosquitoes, wind, the sun and creeping things. One endures ill-spoken, unwelcome words and arisen feelings that are painful, racking, sharp, piercing, disagreeable, troublesome, distressing and menacing to life. Do any of those three benefits interest anyone? The fear and dread, that's something that most of us know. The discontent. Unwelcome words. Anyone is in this room never not, never not had unwelcome words directed to you? What is it about mindfulness of body that lets one become a conqueror in a way, a master of these things? I'm going to leave the why and the how come for now and I'll get there in the course of this retreat. Maybe you can also find out for yourself. If you practice this, you can see what happens to to the relationship with fear. One of the things, one of the places fear arises is with regard to the body. A lot of our resistance in practice to come more deeply into the body is because the body is the place where we feel a lot. And we can be afraid of this capacity to feel. Feeling is a very mixed bag. And this body is very sensitive. This organism, this animal organism is easily impacted. Right? You know, you can feel it in here. When was it? Was it last night it was cool? This morning it was quite cool in here, wasn't it? Initially. And ooh, Temperature just goes down a couple of degrees and there's a kind of animal sensitivity that we feel here. Or then it gets too hot in here or too airless and then, ooh, I don't like it. And just on the level of the organism, there is, you know, a very small bandwidth of degrees that human beings can live within. It's a very small amount of degrees and probably many of you know from reading the literature about climate change that if the the planet goes up a few more degrees, certain habitats are not possible. So there's a very sort of survival level around temperature that that we react to. What happens with the body is that on the level of Right here and now, it's simply sensation. 
It's hot, it's cold, it's dense, it's light, it's painful, it's pleasurable. But for most of us, without training, what immediately happens then is what the mind does with it. And this is the teaching where the Buddha spoke about the two arrows, very famous teaching. He said, having a human body, I'm sure he didn't use the word having, because it's not like we have it, it's here for a while. Being a human body, having a human body, a human body will have sensation. And that sensation will be sometimes very pleasurable, sometimes painful, and sometimes neutral. And he said that painful sensation of human experience is like being shot with an arrow. Right? That's just how it is. He said, however, it's as if then we're shot with a second arrow right into that first arrow. Thunk. And that is what the mind does with the experience of pain. It's a secondary process. Sensation is arising. It may be unpleasant. But what the mind does with it is a whole other story and is not bound to follow. And that second arrow goes into the first and everything intensifies and contracts and becomes a lot more intense and hard to bear. And what does your mind do when you have difficult sensation today? One of the things it does is we get afraid. We get afraid. It's like, oh no, my knee's starting to hurt. Your knee may be hurting. That may be true. Uh Uh-oh. Oh my God, I don't think I can stand it. I can't stand it. I really can't stand it. What am I going to do? I'm, I don't want to move because then I'll look like I'm moving. Or, oh yeah, I do want to move. Uh, when are they going to ring the bell? And why am I stuck here? And why, and why did I stay here anyway? And why did I think this would do me any good? And off we go. Can we come back and recognize, wow, wow. There's two experiences happening here. There's pain arising. And there's everything my mind is doing with that. As we slow down, we can start to uncouple these two experiences. (coughs) We can start to inhabit our body a whole lot more. And as we do, we fear it less. A lot of our fear in having one of these bodies is that we're not, we don't yet know how to bear with and tolerate and see the relevance and significance of bearing with the difficult sensation. (coughs) Every time you are there sitting, something starts hurting, a couple of things can happen. You can either get into reactivity around it, right, where we're trying to, we either go to two extremes normally. We go to the extreme of, right, I'm going to be the diehard meditator. I'm not going to move and I'm going to bear with it and be a super-duper Buddha, right? And we kind of muscle in there and, right, I'm, the di- I'm in the diehard school of meditation. And my knee hurts, but I'm not going to move because I'm hard or whatever it is 
right? And we stay there and we're battling and our teeth grit and we don't move and we think we're doing great. But we're getting harder and harder and more angry and aversive and I'm not going to let this body win over on me. It's not going to get the better of me. Anybody recognize that as an attitude? Or we go to the other side, it's like, oh, my body's hurting, right, I better move, I better not, oh, I don't want to feel any pain. Okay. Oh, no, I've got to move. Oh, there's an itch, I'm going to scratch. Oh. And every time we do then what we're cultivating is this agitated butterfly mind that never settles because we're reacting to every small sensation. <coughs> Both of them are extremes. In practice, we're interested in the middle way. Ah, middle way. Very good news. We're not trying to be stoic and hard, but neither are we the butterfly that reacts to everything. We recognize what's happening with the physical pain. We breathe with it. We include it. We see if our attitude is one of curiosity and interest. Can I stay here? Can I stay here a little longer? What happens if I stay here a little longer with this burning in my back? happens oh wow I can hear the mind screaming ah wow there's that and then I can breathe out the middle way which the Buddha is always pointing to is something quite beautiful and remarkable and something that we can all cultivate he had to cultivate it in his life he had he went to he was Mr. Extreme He really did the extremes with regard to life and the bodily life, very much. And in his story, which has a very archetypal aspect, uh, sort of uh, feel to it, I'll tell very briefly, see if you can recognize for yourself, this isn't about some guy who's, you know, some, somehow different from you in any way that means like he can get enlightened but you can't. He was a guy. He was a guy who struggled, who had existential pain about what it meant to be a human being. He was a guy who struggled. He was a guy who left home so that he could find out what really had core meaning and significance, what really was the path to the end of suffering. And his two extremes with the regard to the body were, number one, taking the view, the view that the body really is the place for gratification and for home. So before he left home, he had the best physical pleasure you could dream of. He had, not only was he handsome, he had a palace in North India for the cool season. It can get cold there in the winter. The right temperature, the right air, the right everything. He had a palace for the rainy season that was just right. He had the best food, the best dancing girls, the best entertainment, the lavish pleasures of the body were his for his taking, all of it. And there was no peace. He left home and he went to the other extreme. 
well, you know, the body didn't do it for me. So let me explore what's not that. And he went to the extreme in a way we could say is quite punitive, quite punitive to the body, where he didn't eat enough, where he starved himself, where the story goes that he was so emaciated that his back ribs could be seen through the front of his body. He was doing that in the effort and the hope and the attempt to go beyond. But at a certain point he realized too, this was not the path. This was another extreme. And it's on the night that he gave up that those ascetic practices that he took some milk rice that was offered to him and his diehard mates thought he was selling out because he took the easy way, he had a nice meal. And he took his uh, seat, he took his seat under the Bodhi tree, the story which probably many of you know. He made a little cushion out of grass, kusala grass, and he sat and made the determination that he would sit there until he understood deeply what needed to be understood. So he moved out of the two extremes with regard to the body. Do you know or recognize either of those in you? The one where we're trying to get it together with our body. We're trying to have... We're trying to make the body our home, which isn't a bad thing, except if the view is that it really can be forever, it can't. It can't. This body is subject to birth, to sickness, to aging, to death. It's, it isn't ultimately who and what we are. And when we try and get a bodily concepts together in such a way to find rest you know you can see it very easily in the um in the magazines those people who really the the young models or um yeah as a good example some of them really trying hard and working hard on the level of appearance and it doesn't bring rest doesn't bring the peace that we seek. Even if you get the best set of concepts about your body together, you know, just for a minute, imagine you got the right hair and the right weight and the right everything. Any conceptual ideas or labels, even the best ones, do not take us home. Do not take us home. Do not give us the peace that we seek. But the other extreme is that we completely disregard the body. Completely disregard it. Right, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to fall into that trap of trying to be a body type. But then we disregard the body we kind of start living up in our head. 
we move away from the body, we start to get a distaste even for the body, like, ooh, I don't like it. It's too much sensation. It's too human. And we move up into our head further and further away into the realms of ideas and abstraction. And we don't find home either. So this path that begins with mindfulness of body has many benefits to it. And it's quite profound in the way it cuts through our ego tendency to either deify the body or ignore and abuse the body. Either to try and make it, yes, it's who I am, or no, that's not who I am. We come to a middle way, which can be known moment by moment by moment. Where the body then can start to be a vehicle that gives us information. Right? All those painful sensations you have today, they can be really difficult. It's really true. But the function of them is that they're saying, pay attention here. This is the function of pain, and we can respond to that. One of the most uh, very impactful stories I remember in uh, having been in India and spending time in a, a situation in a leprosy clinic is that the disease of leprosy, which we think of as one where bits of your body fall off, which it is, But that isn't what the disease is. The disease of leprosy is actually that the people stop feeling pain in their extremities. And because they do, then they're not sensitive to when they put their hand somewhere like in a flame or something too hot. And it gets damaged and gets infected. And because it gets infected... And the condition, you know, if they're poor, the conditions aren't there to support them. That's when the bits fall off. They've lost the capacity to feel pain in their extremities. I find that very uh, impactful. There's something about our capacity to feel. We can also feel a lot of pleasure. We'll get there. But if we're looking at the realm of pain, there's something quite extraordinary about the feedback in the body and learning how to come into a wise relationship with it. So tomorrow morning in the instruction, I'll talk a little bit about how where sensation fits in the path unpleasant sensation and pleasant sensation and and neutral sensation where that fits in the path of practice it's not a mistake it's not an error this body is sensate it will sense that's what it does another reason that we give attention I think the Buddha points us to the mindfulness of body is because In some ways, it's a little easier to get a handle on the body than it is on our mind initially. 
in the four foundations of mindfulness, the Buddha, Buddha does go on to, to teach us how to be mindful with the mind. But we don't start there. We don't start there. One way that it's broken down in the teachings, just to give you a bit of framework, is that of the patternings that we have, there, uh, we can talk usefully about three kinds of patternings. There's what is called the Vajji Sankara, the patterning of what is speech, but it literally means the articulation in the head center, right? The thinking, basically. And have you noticed there's a lot of patterning that we tend to have around that? It kind of goes around the same loops or it jumps into those loops. or you know. And we're very bonded to that. We're very identified with the thinking processes. We really believe it's who I am. If my mind tells me I'm useless, I believe it. If my mind says, you're great, I believe it. We're very bonded. We very, have a big allegiance to what our mind tells us. It's very hard to start working with that. The second patterning, the chitta sankara, the chitta is normally translated as mind, but mind in uh, Asian languages and, ch- and chitta doesn't just doesn't mean this, head center. It's usefully translated as heart mind. And it's the faculty of the kind of resonant faculty that in you which resonates with things. Our mind, like our mind states, so sometimes the chitta can be resonant with love. Sometimes the chitta can be resonant with anger. Sometimes the chitta is really spacious and open and bright. Sometimes the chitta is really dull and thick and heavy. Do you get a sense of what the chitta is? It's this kind of resonant Probably right now you can take a moment to sense what's the quality of your chitta right now. Is it bright? Is it thick? Is it impatient? Is it confused? Right. That too we're very identified with. But it's a little often less sticky than the thinking process. It can get a little more handle on it. The kaya sankara, the body... The body, the sensation, the foot touching, the heat, the cold, the hard, the soft, the sensate body is a little easier to get a handle on. We're not quite so bonded to it. This body, even if we never contemplate the fact that one day it will die, on some level we know that. On some level we're a little bit more amenable to offering our body back to the earth, just a little bit. When you take a step out there, when you're doing the qigong and you let your weight drop through your legs, through your feet, we're a little bit more amenable to giving ourselves back. And we start there, we, we start to resonate with this, the kaya sankara. We use the mindfulness of breathing as a useful patterning here. And that allows the chitta, the resonant function, and it allows the vajji, the speech, the articulation, the thinking, to start to nestle, to rest, to come to rest a little bit with the body. 
And you'll see that over the days, how that starts to function. It may not be your experience on the first day, it might be. But you can see the intelligence in that system as you work with the body a bit more. So I think I'm going to end. I believe I'm going to end. I am going to end. And I'm just wondering about reading you this story, something that I read every third retreat because I love it so much. Um, Yeah, I think I'll read it. Some of you know it very well. See how it is to hear it again. So this is... A story, a true story from one of my teachers um, from 20 years ago, actually. And he was telling it was already years past then. So it was earlier on in his practice. And he's a monk and still is a monk uh, in the Thai forest tradition. And it's about working with pain, physical pain. Okay, Many years ago, he said, I had this particular pain in my right shoulder. I would sit. Pain, I would think. Be with the pain, that'll do it. Here I am, being with the pain. Being with the pain. It's not working though. Maybe I need to do some yoga. Ah, that's better. Oh no, a cushion, one cushion, two cushions, three cushions, four cushions. Angle the cushions to the left. Angle angle the cushions to the right. Doctor, you've got to help me. Chiropractor, osteopath. For five years I had this pain. And I had an extremely active and ingenious mind trying to find every possible way to wriggle out of the fact that pain hurts and I don't like it. A very obvious truth, yet I hadn't actually come to that, accepted what one glosses over in a few words. I don't like pain. Instead, I had acted on I don't like pain. I hadn't actually examined the experience of not liking pain. I tried to think, well, I should like pain. Pain is good for me. Or pain is bad, make it go away. But I had not really looked into, I do not like. One day, sitting in meditation, I thought, this is it, the showdown. I'm going to sit here for five hours and I'm going to get over this thing. Pain, pain, wiggle, wiggle. Why did I say that? Why did I say five hours? After all, what about the middle way? Hours go by. Two hours. Three hours. Three hours and one minute. After about four hours, I was so sick of the pain, my mind had been through all the various circuits of be nice to it, be friendly to it, kill it. And it had come back to, oh God, this pain. And finally my mind just rested. It got tired out, I guess. Eventually ignorance does get tired and it has to take a break from being ignorant. And instead of ignoring the pain or repressing it, actually began to open to it. Without the, let's open to it and make it go away, or 
Let's open to it and that will make me go into some kind of cosmic space. But just, oh, all right. Then I began to feel this sensation throbbing away. And it began to appear in my mind as a kind of glowing light, throbbing, tearing, a tearing experience. And then because of the choice, less attention to it, I began to notice, well, there's that. And then there's this terrible kind of, no, no, no feeling going on. Ah, resistance. Then with that, a whole lot of bitterness towards the body, bitterness towards pain. Oh, pain, I don't like it. It shouldn't happen to me. What did I do? I'm sitting here trying to be peaceful. Go away. And all of this kind of moaning mind. As I contemplated my relationship to this sensation, it became clear to me that there was nothing I could do with the sensation. But I could stop beating it with my mind. I began to have this experience of deep regret for all the beatings and kickings that this mind had imposed upon life, upon this body, upon itself, upon its thoughts, telling it to shut up, telling it to be this way. And I felt like my whole system was like some kind of mangy dog that had never really been loved and had just been told what to do and beaten. And in fact, this vision arose in my mind of this dog, a kind of mangy, hungry wolf, looking at me, saying, how long are you going to keep beating me for? I felt this sense of deep regret that there should be so much intolerance and harshness towards life. In my mind's eye, something in me reached out to this creature and started to pat it and to say, please forgive me. Then this creature turned into a cartoon dog and we were dancing, me and the pain, me and the pain, and then the whole thing dissolved, very gently, and the pain disappeared. It seemed to say, thank you, finally, I've been knocking on your door for five years. Thank you for opening. Thank you for recognising that the problem was, I do not like, I will not accept. I will not open to you. And once you open, the lesson can be learned and the business can be finished. So let's sit for a moment to end together.
May all beings meet their body with sensitivity. May all beings meet their body with an upright mind. May all beings know peace.